I was, <clears throat> I was reminded this afternoon of a description a friend gave once of this practice. He noticed that uh, sometimes people will ask, oh, what's that meditation stuff about then? Without really being interested. And he found it kind of uh, frustrating, painful even, to try and expose something that felt very beautiful, very profound for him, to find that people were, could be dismissive or non-understanding or um, unappreciative. So he developed a kind of reduced description for those cases, and he called it happiness training. <laughs> hmm, reduced description, and yet nevertheless... A fairly accurate one. Maybe I should have called this weekend that. Happiness training. I met with uh, quite a lot of you today. Individually. And of course, engaging with different themes that have seemed important and relevant and alive for you, things that you've been engaging with, things that have been kind of revealing themselves over the day of practice together. But certainly a common thread of all those themes, however diverse they may may be, is this concern with happiness. And then we can all recognize the wish, the longing, the concern for happiness. And the Buddha said once, somebody came to see the Buddha in a congregation of uh, wandering nuns and monks practicing together and said, how come they all look so radiant? Could have been somebody coming in this afternoon here. <laughs> wow. All those strange figures huddled in shawls. How come they all look so radiant? And the Buddha said, because this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness, that is peace. Sounds rather, you know, one of these kind of elevated sayings or something we may found inspiring but we might contrast that with the the way the days unfolded for us we may ask ourselves oh, is this is this the path of happiness has today been a happy day so i'd like to look a little bit this evening at how come the buddha dared to call this a path of happiness <coughs> What does happiness mean to us? It's a word maybe that's overused, maybe that's cheapened in some ways by the things we the things we ascribe to it. And what might that happiness be that the Buddha's pointing to? The the kind of 
It's kind of the lowest common denominator. And yet it's also very, very prevalent in the culture we've grown up in to equate basically happiness with acquisition. And you know, we see the, the, the basic messages we get from um, education and the media and you know, the, all the various direct and indirect, uh, overt and covert or subliminal messages we get bombarded with in our lives that basically say, get this and you'll be happy. Have this and you'll be happy. Often held up in the kind of material realm. Get this object thing and you'll be happy. And it's kind of a tragedy when we look at it to see that this getting, having, becoming is often what we call happiness. It's not really happiness. It's it's a kind of cheapening of happiness. It's more a kind of a thrill. It's a kind of uh, stimulation of pleasant contact. It's not to deny the, the the pleasantness of getting, having and doing nice things. Right? Pleasant contacts, whether it comes from seeing something pleasant touching something pleasant, the sense of getting or owning something pleasant gives us a certain thrill, the, the thrill of pleasant sensations. I just got a new car uh, day before yesterday. Don't get excited when I say new. It's eight years old, but... New to me. And it's different, right? So I, somebody kindly brought it for me from Germany, where it was cheaper than in France where I live. So I got home on Thursday. Silver as well. Silver car. And then on Friday, yesterday, I drove the new car for the first time to the airport to come here. And there's a certain thrill. Right? It's different. The old car, been driving for five years. What now? There's a certain thrill. Thrill, (laughs) I'm not sure about the word thrill. But excitement, a pleasant contact. Maybe I'm not sure because it's like men and cars and thrill. It doesn't quite go. But you can fill in whatever gaps for yourself. New watch, new clothes, new this. Anything in the world of acquisition. There's a certain, that's what we like about it, a certain thrill of the pleasant. But wouldn't it be tragic if that was as far as we got in our quest for happiness. And of course it's not as far as you have all got in your quest for happiness, or you wouldn't be here. You'd be shopping. (laughs) But sadly, a vast amount of people in this country have spent their Saturday shopping. That is as far as a lot of people get in the quest for happiness, is trying to get it through acquisition. The Buddha said in one of my uh, favourite of his lines, 
He said, from complete and unexcelled liberation, I gained absolutely nothing. From complete and unexcelled liberation, utter freedom of being, I gained absolutely nothing. He could, he could be co-opted by the anti-consumerist movement. It's a radical statement. So, the Buddha and this practice is talking about a happiness that's of a completely different order than the rather crude, though undeniable, thrill of pleasant experience, of having, getting something pleasant. And we come to an environment like this, we come to a retreat then, with the situation set up and with the willingness to put aside acquisition, to look in a deeper way, to look for another kind of happiness. We spoke yesterday, I spoke yesterday evening a little about this uh, tendency to uh, distract and defend ourselves. And this opportunity to come back from distraction. This opportunity to look beneath our defences. And so we could equally describe our opportunity here as one of looking beyond acquisitiveness. And yet, as we've explored a little bit, and as as you've no doubt seen, that drive is very strong in us. That's why the allure of getting, having, doing, becoming, the allure of the new, the allure of advertising, the allure of uh, acquisition is so strong, because the habit in us is so strong. That's why it's reflected in the culture. And so when we come to an environment like this, we can bring the same kind of acquisitive uh, motivation, understandably, normally, to a meditation practice. And that's one of the one of the major things in different ways, different ways means an increasing subtlety of ways that we get to explore in this practice is, is basically the I want something. Something to happen. Something to be a certain way. And how invested we are in it. How much, how strongly and uh, powerfully and uh, hotly how kind of how much charge there is how strongly the the sense of self arises in that i want and they're not in the material realm particularly not much chance for that here there will be book sales tomorrow <laughs> the end of the retreat so you'll be able to get into that a little bit but otherwise fairly limited opportunity 
but I want you know, my legs to stop aching. I want a quiet mind. I want that damn bell to ring at the front. And what's the belief invested in that? You know, if only my legs didn't ache, then I could really meditate. Then everything would be okay. But there's plenty of times in our life when our legs don't ache. And is everything okay? <laughs> you know, we know it's not. And yet, and yet, if we look carefully, we invest in that belief. In the moment when the leg's aching, something in us believes it. Not philosophically, not abstractedly, but <coughs> viscerally. If only my legs would stop aching. We say, we think, we feel. We, then everything would be okay. The Buddha didn't gain pain-free legs. The Buddha didn't gain uh, a nice quiet mind. The Buddha gained, he says, absolutely nothing from complete and unexcelled liberation. So this practice invites us in a rather stark way, I would say, to investigate and to challenge the idea that if my body was in a different condition, if my mind was in a different condition, if my history was different, if the situation was different, if the uh, person who's coughing near me stopped doing that and that was different, if, uh, the te- if they'd only get the temperature right in here and it was just you know, reasonably warm or reasonably cool or whatever we think it should be, if, 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 mantra-like, if only, if only. To challenge the view that if only something was a bit different, the quality of our life would, would somehow, everything would be easier to manage. Because unfortunately there's always something. I'm sit here through the morning with aching legs. If only my leg didn't ache. And then, hear this kind of quite regularly, and then I would come back after lunch and miracle, legs don't ache. Wow. And then, (laughs) oh, sleepy mind. And then we say, if only I wasn't sleepy. We can even start to go back to, oh, at least when my legs ached, it kept me awake. (laughs) If only my legs ached. So we see that it's a kind of natural tendency of the mind. I don't, I don't imagine for a moment there's anybody in this room who hasn't, over the last 24 hours of being here, experienced that delusion. The belief that if only something was different, everything would be okay. It's a natural movement of the mind. But this practice asks us, Wisdom invites us to challenge that belief. 
wouldn't it be a tragedy if that if only I had movement that we uh, that I just uh, talked about in the material realm was the way we conducted our spiritual practice trying to manipulate and control circumstances to be different <coughs> so we're in wouldn't it be a tragedy if that if only i had movement that we uh, that i just uh, talked about in the material realm was the way we conducted our spiritual practice trying to manipulate and control circumstances to be different <coughs> so we're invited to bring insight to bring awareness to bring a ve- investigation to see through the fiction of that if only to be steady enough moment by moment to not make our happiness dependent on the sensations in our legs to not make our happiness dependent on when the bell rings or if the mind was quieter than it is the great freedom available to us and considerable freedom available in being able to stay steady in the face of the mind producing quite naturally pleasant sensations things we see touch taste remember experience imagine think of feel in wanting them to continue those pleasant things there's a naturalness when unpleasant experiences thoughts feelings memories ideas arise in not wanting them but if we blindly follow those movements we're pushed and pulled around we're enslaved by the natural play of the pleasant and the unpleasant there's a great freedom then in being able to stand steady in the face of the changing pleasant and unpleasant contacts that we have and to look in another direction for happiness a happiness that isn't something that i can get or need to get a happiness that i i don't need to pursue to grab hold of to keep oh, what a relief if my sense of engaging with happiness wasn't something i had to take all the responsibility for getting having doing keeping maintaining if happiness wasn't something i need to be on the guard for all the things that might interfere with it 
that I have to keep at bay, get rid of, stop happening. This, as I say, would be a uh, a radical way to contemplate what the happiness of the Buddha might be. So, and as well as, <coughs> excuse me. So. As well as the the natural movement of pleasant and unpleasant, and the natural movement of the liking and disliking, the, that natural movement that can seem like a bombardment to us at times, particularly when there's no steadiness in the mind, when we find ourselves unable to settle, to relax to open. But that bombardment, which as we refine our attention and our capacity to stay with, we can start to see as a natural movement of pleasant and unpleasant. As well as that force, there's this strong force that seems to be, that presents itself as being about happiness. That is all the ideas we have the expectations we put on ourselves. It's not the same kind of flavour as what we want, what we'd like, what we would move towards in that way. Like, if only my legs didn't ache. But more a sense of how I should be, how things should be, how this should be. And a kind of a harsh, critical voice that we overlay on our experience. And we can overlay it out there, can find plenty of things to complain about at Gaia House, I'm sure. We can overlay it up here, can find plenty of things to complain about up here with me, I'm sure. But we can also, in the place we do it most scathingly, most cruelly, is within the expectations we put on ourselves. I should be able to sit still for 45 minutes. I should be able to control my mind. I should be able to be together. I should be successful. I should be a nice person. I should be kind to others. I should have better thoughts about the person next to me. And then the real nail in the coffin, and someone mentioned to me today, I should not have so many I should thoughts. <laughs> what a number to lay on oneself. And there's plenty of Examples of that that you may notice for yourself. And perhaps more tragically, there's plenty of examples we may not even notice for ourselves because we're so habituated to giving authority to that 
judgmental, critical structure. In a way that we wouldn't dream of, however critical we may be outwardly, we wouldn't dream of saying to somebody else, when the silence breaks tomorrow, oh, you you should have been more mindful. You should have sat better. You shouldn't have eaten so much. We wouldn't dream of it. And yet we don't mind, it seems, berating ourselves in that way. As if we can persuade ourselves to improve. As if we're doing it for our own good. As if this will make me happy if I can sort myself out. So our practice invites us to challenge that view. In different ways. In getting to know that critical structure, in recognizing it, in befriending it. Poor guy in here, moaning away. You should be like this, you should be like that, you should do, 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 do. Oh. Poor guy. So there's, there's some steps with that process. But most significantly, firstly, recognizing, seeing through the, the authority we give it. And actually seeing its structure, its harshness. And not taking it on board. Seeing harsh voice in the language we were using this morning, as a harsh voice, rather than as the truth about the way I am. Again, it's a great freedom to see through our harsh, judgmental, critical structures and its descriptions that we apply to ourselves. So these freedoms, the freedom to see through the illusion of getting, having and doing to be happy. The freedom of seeing through the demands we make on ourselves and what we should do to be better, to be enough, to be good enough, to be happy enough. These are freedoms that allow the heart to relax. To open, to be at ease. These are freedoms that allow us to be without attaining, without getting something. It's perhaps ironic. Now, do we come here? Not to get anything at all. Despite what we may think as we arrive. It would be my greatest wish that you leave here without gaining anything at all. (laughs) But rather by shedding some weight that you may be carrying. 
So this happiness, this heart's ease, this freedom that the Buddha describes has a lot to do with our capacity to really investigate the delusions that we labour under. To investigate the wrong places that we've been looking for happiness. And contemplative traditions also talk about the happiness or the bliss of solitude, the happiness of samadhi, of a well-trained mind. Samadhi means um, yeah, steadiness of mind, really. And certainly, you may have got a glimpse over the last couple of the days, or just maybe a sense of the way in which our mind that seems kind of like a crazy, wild thing can actually be trained. And I know that idea was very inspiring to me when I first came to this practice. The fact, oh, no, it's not hopeless on this mind. It can be trained. And some people... Staying here at Gaia House for weeks or months. In order to train the mind, enable, in order to get to know the mind, to familiarize oneself with it, and the way in which the mind starts to really respond to training, to become light, flexible, bright. And the mind starts to um, responds to stillness and care that we give it. And so, and that which is referred to, as I say in the tradition, as the bliss of samadhi, the way in which the mind can really become very refined in meditation, very still. one can experience a, a, a very refined form of delight, of happiness, of peace, in just dwelling within itself. It's not a happiness of getting or attaining. It's not even the happiness of understanding. It's the happiness of resting within itself. Some of you may be, and some of you of course have, or are spending uh, long periods of time here. And some of you may be inspired, possibly by your day or two here, possibly by my description of the light, bright, flexible, steady mind, to spend a long, a long period of time in retreat. Managers and I were saying at lunchtime, we wonder if weekend retreats are really a good idea. For, beginning, for people beginning meditation. Because people who have done longer retreats will know, often it's the first 
two or three days of a retreat that can be the most difficult, when the body is the most um, reluctant, when the mind's the most uh, unsettled. And after a few days, there's a kind of ease with the posture and settling of the mind that happens. I think on a weekend retreat, you only get to be here for the restless mind and restless body bit. (laughs) And then, of course, the tendency is to project that forward and think, oh, a week's retreat, a month's retreat, just a week or a month of restless body and restless mind. But actually there's this extraordinary refining process that can happen. Not not in a linear way that there's just a more and more steadiness, more and more quietness. Certainly all manner of things can get revealed in that. But that sense of the possibility of a mind that responds. That one can really start to trust in some way. That one can delight in. That one can rest in. And so that a period of meditation can be something, as our practice develops, that's delightful, that's restful, that's refreshing. There can be a quality of rest in meditation that's much more refreshing and vivifying, actually, than sleep. Sometimes the mind isn't very still in sleep at all. That kind of, yeah, it's a language that speaks to me very much. Actually, the bliss of solitude. The yogi's supreme happiness is the bliss of solitude. There's one Indian text that says. So that may sound like an extended advert for silent retreat at Gaia House. I think the Hermitage Wing is actually full at the moment. So. It's, uh, it's very beautiful that people take time out of their lives to engage in that kind of uh, extended practice. And it's a gift, really. It's a uh, uh, skill that we develop that's sort of extraordinary service to us in life. And then when we look at this kind of refinement of happiness from what we started out with, the kind of rather crude excitement of getting, the really investigation of the mind and the way it works, the capacity to rest and some genuine calm, of mind. And then the happiness that's independent of pleasant and unpleasant, of this and that. Independent even of whether the mind is calm or agitated 
peaceful or lively. What might that be? A happiness that's independent of conditions. A happiness that even the word is a little clumsy because a happiness that's not the opposite of anything. We have this extraordinary capacity, as I was saying last night, to not just to have experience, but to know we're experiencing. Awareness is this extraordinary capacity to contain all experience. We speak in a kind of useful but ultimately rather clumsy way about inner experience and outer experience. We have a sort of egocentric idea that awareness is somehow in here. I don't know where. Is it, you know, I can feel it when I press my toe. So is it in my toe? But then I can feel it when I press my elbow. So is it in my elbow? Or then we say, oh, well, maybe it's in my whole body. But I'm in touch with lots of things that are not in my body. I'm in touch with seeing all of you, hearing sounds around. Then there's a kind of other sense of being in touch with in a more energetic or intuitive way. have the sense of awareness being in here and the world being out there. And actually, if we look carefully, it's exactly the other way around. The world, world means everything I experience, everything I see, everything I touch, everything I conceive of, happens within awareness. Awareness is always the container of Limitlessly large. The, heart, the world arises to me. We can see for ourselves moment by moment. The world arises within my awareness of it. Nothing is left out. Nothing's discluded. There's nothing for which awareness does not have room. There's nothing for which awareness does not care, does not allow, does not let in. And we start to see this, to understand this, not as an idea, but in a way that the being knows the truth of it, viscerally, uh, with the clarity and certainty of true insight. There's a way in which being is enormously expanded by that. The wish to be in contact for the love of truth itself. Whether what's there's a preference to be in touch with the pleasant rather than the unpleasant, but more important than the preference, more important than the comfort. the love of, the delighting in, 
the happiness of authenticity, truthful contact, profound intimacy with life. How could I gain anything from complete and unexcelled freedom? The Buddha says, I gained absolutely nothing. Oh, what a relief. Anything I can gain, I can surely lose. So this this retreat, this practice, offers us an unusual opportunity If we practice sincerely, if we look closely and carefully at our life, an unusual opportunity to investigate the assumptions we have about happiness, to investigate the possibly mistaken ways we pursue happiness. And in that investigation, in the steadying of heart and mind that can happen, in the expanding of our sense of what it means to participate in and be conscious of the world, to know a happiness which is truly free, which is wide open, which is not mine, and therefore I don't need to get it, hold it, pursue it, A happiness in which I can give up, can rest, can be truly at ease, at peace. This is the happiness that cannot be gained. This is the path. Of happiness, the Buddha says, leading to the highest happiness, which is peace. The letting go of that need to control, to manipulate the conditions of life. Nothing to do or undo. Nothing to fix or to get rid of. So let our looking be wide awake. Let our investigation be impeccable. Let our care for what's happening be profound and intimate. that we can know the freedom and happiness which is our true nature, which animates our being, which beckons us into its embrace, 
if only we'll give up trying to do it. May it be so for each and every one of us. For the happiness of the world. Okay, let's sit quietly together for a few minutes. <laughs> 